Welcome to the Been There, Got Out podcast. I'm Lisa, a state certified domestic violence advocate and veteran of more than eight years in the trenches of the legal system, the last five successfully representing myself. And I'm Chris. I'm a certified high conflict divorce coach. And between the two of us, we have all this knowledge and experience that we never wanted. But now we can put it to great use, providing expert guidance to people in high conflict divorce and custody situations so you have the best chance in court and beyond. Having the right support from people who get it is so critical to getting you and your children through it as unscathed as possible. And that's exactly what we do through our interviews with experts and other content right here on this podcast. So let's get to it. In this episode of the Been There, Got Out podcast, we welcome New York family lawyer, Ken Novenstern, who talks about the fundamentals of divorce, including what you probably didn't know regarding the significance of an asset list, the nuances of 529 plans, and the importance of choosing a lawyer who stays on top of the law. Take it away, Lisa. It's Lisa from Been There, Got Out. And tonight we are welcoming Ken Novenstern, a New York divorce attorney, family lawyer. Uh, this is his first Instagram live. So I wanted to see if we could do a tech test and there he is. So, okay, Ken, I see you. I'm going to invite you to, um, to join in a second. As soon as it shows me that I can do that, it's just spinning for a sec. Um, so let's see. Okay basic, which I'm kind of almost thinking of divorce 101, which we don't usually do, but there's a lot of people at the beginning of the process. And um, there you go, Ken, you did it. Perfect. Great. All right. Thank so Ken, uh, Ken and I met like a month ago or something through um, an acquaintance of both of ours. And he seemed really knowledgeable. And what's excellent is that he's local to me in New York. And I know we have a lot of you guys watching now and also um, who watched the recording later based in New York. So we thought that maybe a good topic to talk about would be just basics of divorce. So with that, Ken, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background because you've been practicing for a while. Sure. I started uh, matrimonial law back in about 1985, uh, upstate New York, official upstate New York, Syracuse, and uh, been practicing in the area about 38 years now. And after two years in Syracuse, I came down to Westchester, spent a year with a firm in White Plains, and then ended up in Northern Westchester for most of the last 37 years or so, or 35 years or so. And currently I'm a partner in Fredman Bacon and Novenstern LLP. And we have a main office in White Plains and a Mount Kisco office in uh, Velocity Space in 100 South Bedford Road, which is now Optum Medical, which used to be Mount Kisco Medical and a few variations in between. Um, but yes, I've been doing matrimonial law in Westchester for a good part of the so last So you know a lot, years. and that's why I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk about just the basics of divorce. So one of the things we talked about when we first met was why it's important to have a divorce attorney, you know, definitely during the divorce stage versus doing it yourself. I know with our clients, we often say there's a lot of things they can do, but we always say 
that for the divorce, they really need an attorney. So can you tell people why it's so important? Yes. Um, a few, well, many reasons. I mean, there's the old line about Abraham Lincoln and um, that an attorney who represents himself has a fool for a client. Um, and so, you know, I understand there are going to be some situations and I believe, Lisa, you've done quite a bit of work on post-judgment, not divorce, though. <laughs> and so, you know, th there are circumstances where it might be fine to do something by yourself. But um, if it's a more, more complicated situation, if there are children involved, if there are meaningful assets involved, um, it's very important, for instance, you know, even with the basics in terms of the definitions of marital property and separate property, one of the issues that we see come up frequently is that one party's parents um, provided funds to purchase the residence, or one party's parents provided funds for 529 accounts, or, you know, something that falls into the category of separate property. And many people don't realize that, we, especially with a residence, you have an argument for a separate property claim when the residence is sold. Even if money was contributed by parents 20 years before, you can use that as the basis for getting reimbursed for that separate property credit off the top um, at the time of a sale at the time of the divorce or post-divorce. 529 accounts, if grandparents establish 529 accounts, those could be used for the contribution to college for the individual whose parents created really? these accounts. 529 accounts are a separate animal unto themselves. People hear 529 accounts mm -hmm. and they think that it's the child's account. But 529 accounts are actually a little bit unusual under New York law in particular. Um, they, are the, they are the property of the titled owner. So the grandparent in this situation retains ownership um, until they use those funds. And they could use those funds for another child. They could use those funds pretty much for whomever they choose, even though they're might be a child referenced on the account. So 529s are great vehicles for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of nuance. And someone who's representing themselves isn't going to have the experience to recognize issues that come up. A lot of what we do is issue identification, you know, and then issue resolution. But you have to know where to look in regard to issues. And so that's, those are just some examples of why it's um, worthwhile to consult with and or retain what, counsel to represent. But if your ex or your soon to be ex, if you're still married is saying, because um, this comes up all the time, listen, we can work it out ourselves. We don't need an attorney. Let's use the same attorney. So, first of all, I, I think you're getting a little bit more into the concept of 
either mediation or collaborative divorce. Um, one attorney cannot represent two people. That's a conflict, clear conflict of interest. And so in terms of process, mediation is a process where one attorney or it could be a, a mental health professional or some other professional um, works with the two parties and goes through issue by issue resolving issues with the goal of working out the terms of a comprehensive separation agreement um, so that individual doesn't represent either party they are neutral and they cannot give legal advice they can only give information um, and even in those situations I always recommend that people get their own attorneys. <laughs> you know, there's a concept. Yeah, there's a concept called mediation consulting attorney, and actually, for me, that's, you know, that is. I hate to say it this way, but it's great work to do, because you know you have the opportunity to help guide people through a process, and the mediators there working, trying to help people resolve issues, and. You know, mediation is a very significant process. And, you know, when I started in Syracuse many years ago, mediation was just coming into the fore in the matrimonial field in the 1990s. Um, collaborative divorce started in New York around 2000, where each party has their own collaborative attorney. And there are other professionals that are often brought in. Uh, financial professionals, mental health professionals. And so, you know, different processes for different people, but, you know, generally um, you don't want to have people representing themselves. That's sort of a last resort. And, you know, the cases in particular, the cases that I see at the courthouse where people are representing themselves, um, it really can they can find themselves going down a rabbit hole because it's just very complicated. And so long answer. No, that's okay. No, so. I was thinking with, in terms of um, when this, the clients that we deal with, when one person is saying we don't need an attorney, we can do it ourselves. It's not somebody who's um, cooperative. It's somebody where they're trying to get away with something and saying, you can trust me. I'll, I'll reveal my assets, but right. it's really taking advantage. And, I, and I'm glad you said, no, it is really important to have your own attorney, even as a consultant, just to make sure they're covering those bases. Right, right. You know, definitely. And, you know, when I hear that, it's, it's a bit of a red flag. Um, but it's really important, even if someone is saying that, to not be lulled into accepting something like that because when I've seen those situations, it seems like there's a bit of a boomerang effect that six months, nine months down the road, the person who agreed finds themselves sort of stuck in a corner because now they have terms and those terms really aren't satisfactory, but they feel like they um, agreed to something, even though they don't have a final agreement in place. 
And so it can be a very bad pattern. It can get someone into a very bad place um, when they try to do that, either with one attorney or relying on the other right. person to guide. Because there's a reason that they are splitting up. So. Okay, we just got a question. How do you keep divorce proceedings confidential? So that's a great question. Um, so there was a case with, um, I guess we could call him one of our founding fathers, and I'm blanking on his name right uh -huh. now, Aaron, Aaron Burr. Um, and his divorce or his first divorce was so salacious in the early 1800s that it was all over the newspapers. As a result, New York enacted a law, I think it's section 235 of the domestic relations law, and divorce proceedings are now confidential. And so, um, you know, it's a little bit of a slippery slope because we yeah. also have this e-file system, but only people who register and only certain people can register, get access to, you know, the process that's taking place. Um, but divorce proceedings are confidential. Okay. Um, another, just a quick question that came in before we were talking about 529s. Someone said, so parents can't touch a 529 even when the grandkids turn 18? So, so first of all, let me just say 529s are an investment vehicle. I'm not a financial advisor, but my experience with 529 accounts is that, again, they are owned by the title holder. In the context of a divorce, if parents open 529 accounts during the marriage, those are part of marital property. And I have cases where, um, for better or worse, people are dividing the accounts as part of equitable distribution and one person may decide to use it toward the children's college. The other person may decide to liquidate the account, take the money, pay the taxes and penalties. Um, so in terms of an age 18 requirement, I think that person might be thinking about uniform transfer to minors accounts, which have an 18 or 21 component to them. I don't believe that there's any age component to a 529 account um but but again that's not my ballywick um there were changes to 529 accounts to broaden their use over the course of the last two large pieces of legislation between um 2018 during the trump administration and i think the american rescue act act under President Biden. So there's even more flexibility now. And I've had financial advisors say to me that people don't realize how wonderful these 529 accounts are um, as investment vehicles because of the tax deferral. And one of the things that just took place was um, you can, there's even more flexibility concerning transferring 529s between people, between family members. Um, so, so it's a great thing to get more information about if people have them. And the 529s that are established during the marriage often get used for college. 
their marital assets, but they'll often be dedicated to college education expenses. I was talking earlier more about grandparent type 529s, which are in the nature of gifts and or can be used um, for the benefit of one of the parties toward their share of the college okay, education great. expenses. Um, okay, so we started talking a little bit about mediation and let's get to the general question of the different options available in divorce, because I think many people assume that you file and you go right to litigate, you go right to trial. So, so from the perspective of litigation, let's just maybe break it down into what a summons and a complaint and what you do with those things. A summons, I'll talk about them as if they were one. A summons and complaint are the two documents that um, start a divorce action. And so when someone files a summons and complaint, they, um, they then have the necessary index number and can proceed with the divorce action. Oftentimes, we don't have to serve the other party. We get agreement and the other, the other attorney will accept service because we've already been in communication. Um, and, and then once the summons and complaint are exchanged, answer in response, um, then the next decision is, do we file a request for judicial intervention? And in New York State and Westchester County, that's the way that you get a judge involved in the case. But up until the point where an RJI is filed, people are still often talking trying to work out issues without court involvement. So there is no judge involved after a summons and complaint is filed until one side files. A and that's not the same in different states. No, because I know in Connecticut, when someone files, you have a year and the trial is, it's expected that a trial is scheduled. So it's different. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. In New York, once once this important document, the request for judicial intervention is filed, my understanding is that that triggers sort of what's called a standards and goals date. And the idea is from the filing of that document until six months down the road, the judge has the time to schedule the discovery and court appearances. But once they hit that six month mark, in theory, the case should be moved on to the next phase, which would be getting trial dates. Doesn't always happen that way, but that's what the judges try to do um, and push the attorneys yeah, that's the parties. <laughs> not our experience in New York with pushing towards trial, but it's a good way to start getting things along, moving along. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would just say that you know, while the general concept is that litigation is potentially a bad thing, sometimes there are cases where um, parties are not able to make progress, that the either the issues are too complicated or, you know, we often see situations where one party didn't see it coming. They didn't recognize that their situation, their marriage had deteriorated to the point of a divorce and the other person made the decision to start a process. So oftentimes one party is still struggling 
to accept the fact that this is happening. And, you know, in a way, I know life isn't fair, but it's a little bit unfair for the person who's in the position of having found out that their marriage is ending and now expecting them to do all the things that need to be done to move forward in a divorce in addition to dealing with all other aspects of life. And so that can delay that can delay things, but one way for the person who decided to proceed to force the process is to get a judge involved. And sometimes either because of that or because of more complicated issues, you do have to litigate and you do have to try and get more guidance and direction from the court or, you know, a push sometimes. Um, so litigation can have benefits. Um, it's just, you know, if you can make the most of mediation or collaborative divorce or some other settlement process, um, in many instances, you're going to have more options. Your attorneys will have more options and you can come to a resolution that's beneficial for the family because, you know, a fully litigated divorce action is extremely stressful for everyone. I was in court this afternoon with a client and we have a draft stipulation of settlement and he just needs more time to go through the agreement and everything else. And, you know, he was stressed out to the point of, you know, not a breakdown, but needing to use more medication. And so I recognize that it's very stressful. Um, but, you know, the, the, the goal is to work on the issues, get to the point where you've built up a pile of resolved issues so that the attorneys can draft an agreement you know, we can talk a little bit more about a separation agreement, but for most people, once they get to that point where they sign the stipulation of settlement, um, you know, it's not that anyone wins, but there is a degree of relief in getting to, yeah. to the end of that. Being in that process, someone asked the question, what are some, uh, for some first few planning steps for people to do when they're even just considering divorce? So planning steps are things like pulling financial information together, um, the last three years tax returns, um, account statements, retirement account statements. We often, I'll often meet with someone for an initial consultation and they will have very little financial information. I find that usually there's one person in the marriage who takes primary responsibility for the finances. And sometimes it's the, well, I shouldn't say husband and wife because, you know, we have same-sex marriage. And, but, you know, it shouldn't be assumed that in the context of husband and wife that it's the husband all the time. Oftentimes it is the wife. And so when you meet with someone who doesn't have the familiarity with the finances and maybe not the level of sophistication of the other spouse, it can be difficult. So pulling information together, documentation, 
um, as much as possible. And, you know, if you have the closing file from the purchase of the home, if you have assets that are separate in nature, um, another important point is with things that are important to you, items of personal property, um, make sure that you secure them because I can't tell you how many times after someone lets the other spouse know that they want a divorce, that mm. things disappear. Um, so rings, I've had cases where, you know, one spouse takes the other's wedding ring and, you know, takes things out of safe deposit boxes. Um, and so securing things that are important to you off premises can be very important. What about um, emo any emotional steps that you think people can take or any steps they can do with their kids? Because I know that's a big concern. It's like, how am I even going to bring this up to the kids or how do I start adjusting uh, life, thinking about life as a single person? Right. So, yeah, these are great questions. I think it's important to have a support network. Um, therapist. I mean, I can remember when I started, you know, there, there's a stigma. Even now, there's a stigma in our society with mental health you know, people taking care of their mental health. And sometimes there's a fear that if you take care of your mental health with therapy and or medication, that that's going to be used against you. Um, what I find is that judges are more concerned about people who have mental health issues who refuse to acknowledge them than people who are dealing with them, even if that includes medication. I often get the question, and I have a case right now where this has come up often. Does that person acknowledge mm, these issues? And, and so, you know, if someone is failing to see that they have an alcohol problem or some other mental health problem, then a judge is going to be more concerned, much more concerned about that than if someone has a problem and they're working to deal with it and become the best person they yeah. can be. Um, okay, so I see a question that just came in. I think I'm gonna jump it ahead just to get that in before the next easy one. Um, and we have a whole chapter in our book on this. What's important to consider in choosing an attorney? So maybe let's narrow it to like the qualities that somebody should look for when they choose an attorney. You know, I, I think it's important to get a sense of people because attorneys are people too. And there may be someone that you work well with and there may be someone that you just bump heads with. Um, so in meeting with attorneys, I would certainly encourage at least, you know, a few consultations. Um, and attorneys in Westchester do charge consultation fees. So don't be surprised. Um, in regard to the attorney that you meet with, I mean, just as Lisa, you're asking these questions, someone should come to a consultation with a list of questions about what's important to them. Um, you know, they should be prepared to talk about their goals and concerns. Um, and, you know, with regard to an attorney, 
you need to get a sense in terms of their depth of knowledge. Are they someone who um, works primarily in the area of family law and matrimonial law? Um, or are they someone who does, you know, 10 different types of law and matrimonial is 10% of what they do? Um, and, you know, there are plenty of very good attorneys who practice a variety of special, I can't use the word specialties, who practice in a variety of areas, um, but they may not be as familiar with the nuances of 529 accounts or um, retirement, dividing up retirement assets or dividing up stock options and the, the Jesus case from 1998 with the formula, you know, that's involved in um, defining marital and separate stock options and restricted stock units and um, those kinds of things. So in ter terms of what I do and in our collaborative group, as an example, I'm part, I just finished two years as president of the New York Association of Collaborative Professionals and a good friend, colleague of mine, Melissa Goodstein, is now president for this year and next. And we do a tremendous number of trainings and things like 529 accounts. We had um, Steve Kaplan, who's a CPA in our area, talk on 529 accounts and other issues with regard to investments, assets. You know, we did a training on that about a month ago. We do trainings and I think we did over 50 trainings um, through, you know, three or four, four different groups within our organization wow. in 2022. And even um, our New York City pod is doing a training next Tuesday on um, issues that come up in collaborative cases where an attorney or a party is, isn't being as straightforward as they should be in the collaborative process. And so we're constantly doing these trainings, which really puts each of us in a good place for dealing with issues that come up. And in addition with our collaborative group, we, we have something that I call therapy for collaborative attorneys or collaborative professionals where roughly, I think 10 months out of the year, we meet on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night for an hour and a half and we go over scenarios that might come up in a collaborative case or in a mediation. And, you know, just to deal with situations that have arisen to support attorneys who have found themselves dealing with a, a difficult situation and, you know, asking if they handled it the best way they could have. So, you know, part of it is does your attorney participate in trainings frequently? Um, you know, what do they do to stay current, stay up to date, and, and find, you know, as much information as possible so that they can yeah, convey that. Yeah, that's, that's really important. I just thought of something while you were talk, talking about, um, this comes up a lot. Why do certain attorneys ask to see someone's entire financials during an initial consult? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think each attorney has their own philosophy on what an initial consultation should look like. I mean, for me, 
I do try and get at least an outline of finances so that I can start identifying mm -hmm. issues in the case. Um, because, you know, it, it's just, I think it's important to get a sense of the situation, a sense of those issues. I mean, um, it may be that a situation is, has too many issues to really get into an initial consultation, but I like to at least give a client of a Harry Woodpecker or Danny Woodpecker at my theater here. Um, it's, uh, I like to get a sense of what I'm dealing with. And so, um, having an idea oftentimes to your question earlier, what can you get together in advance? One of the things is an asset list. I mean, when someone walks in with a spreadsheet of their assets and liabilities, that's like, you know, manna from heaven for an attorney because it really helps us get a sense of what's going on and what we need to advise a I'm client about. I'm writing that down because I never thought of it, but it makes a lot of sense. And the reason I asked about why some attorneys ask for financials is because the what we hear often from our people is they feel suspicious when an attorney asks for finances on the initial consult because they think, oh, they're trying to see how much money they can get from us. Did you know that? Oh my goodness, that's so interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, it's really just, you know, you're trying to ascertain what the situation looks like. And one of the, you know, one of the more important pieces of communication, whether it's a divorce, I mean, I spoke with a potential client this morning about a postnuptial agreement. Um, you know, we're trying to get a sense of what's important to the individual, you know, what their goals and concerns are. And so having a sense of the assets really helps to give the case yeah, context. I'm so glad I asked you this because and, uh, it's interesting that you didn't realize it and our clients probably, our community doesn't realize like there's a reason you're asking that's not just because of, um, making someone financially undressed, but figuring out the issue. Yeah. 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 Well, well, and, and that, and, you know, we often get into a discussion of the equitable distribution law and what's marital property and what's separate property. And as I touched on earlier with the idea of a contribution toward the purchase of a home, um, you know, we often see, separate property issues, and they actually occupy probably a pretty significant amount of time in cases. And, you know, as an example, in a case that I have right now, the parties purchased their home prior to the marriage and made disproportionate contributions to the purchase price. And, you know, that's an issue unto itself because since they purchased it prior to the marriage, it falls into the mm -hmm. category of separate property. And, you know, and people don't realize this. I mean, people are generally going into a relationship with the best of intentions, and they're not thinking about what the divorce law is going to say if they get divorced 25 years down the road, you know, but there are all these issues that come up and 
you know, for me, it's never too early to start trying to figure out what the well, issues are going to be. Speaking of early, someone asked the question, what do you think of prenup agreement? So I think prenup agreements generally are good. Um, in cases that I've had in the divorce context, when people have a prenuptial agreement, it really does narrow the issues that we have to address. So it can be very helpful in that way. Um, you and I discussed the fact that I've done a number of videos since uh, pre since COVID started in uh, April of 2020 when you know I was wondering mm -hmm. if I was ever going to practice law again. Um, I started doing videos. I've done over 100 videos, and one of those videos, at least one of those videos, I talk about prenups and postnups and one of my concerns with prenups is that I've seen something that I might refer to as sort of a nuclear prenup where generally with prenups you're looking at to oversimplify three or four main areas you're looking at um, in many cases narrowing the definition of assets that would fall within marital assets, expanding the separate assets. Um, you're dealing with things like, um, you're dealing with things like the, I'm sorry, a client is texting. I thought you were looking at a bird. Um, no, I just, I'm trying to get my focus back from the text. Um, so with the prenups, you're looking at the definition of assets, you're looking at spousal support and the post-divorce spousal maintenance statute in New York, um, whether people are going to waive spousal support or try and define spousal support. Um, obviously, you're looking at what happens in the event of a divorce, and you're also looking at what might happen if one party were to die, die during the marriage. and in some situations, I've seen um, where one party comes to the marriage with substantially greater assets or income than the other party and is looking for the other party to waive any claim to a share in their separate assets, waive any claim to a share in the, mar in the home that they already own that will become the marital home waive any claim to spousal support and waive any claim in the event of their death. And so that concerns me as an example, waiving a claim to a share in the marital home. Marital homes are one of the main ways that in our society we accumulate wealth. And if someone is waiving a claim to a share in the home, and 20 years down the road, they get divorced, and the home is really the main asset of the marriage, that person who waived the claim is gonna find themselves in a very difficult place financially. And so, um, so I think prenups are very good, and they, when people are using them in a reasonable, rational way, they are very effective. Both parties need to have their own attorneys. Oh, that's important. Um, but yeah, I, I, I am concerned. Yeah. 
I am concerned. Yeah, in terms, well, it's very important because if only one party has an attorney and the other party represents him or herself, the party who has the attorney may be subject, the agreement may be subject to attack in the future because the party without the attorney might say that they didn't know we what they were doing. We have a lot of clients attorney. like that where they signed a prenup, but there was no, you know, just the other side, may, it was private. They said, oh, just, let's just do that. And they, yeah, they didn't get right. <laughs> any advice from a neutral person. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so important. And in so many different contexts in this area, you know, someone who doesn't have an attorney really takes significant risks yeah. with their future. Okay, so let's talk about also what are some basic areas. You mentioned a couple, but um, not in, in the context of this question. Some things that are dealt with during a divorce, like what, what a court or what, what's decided, what's, what's divided. Um, so, you know, in terms of the divorce, let's say a typical situation where people have been married for 15 or 20 years, they do have a home. Let's say that no one gave them any money. They used their joint funds to purchase the home. Um, they have money in retirement accounts. They have money in 529s for their children. Um, so, you know, in that kind of situation, a 15 to 20 year marriage in New York is considered long a long term marriage. Ten years. And yeah, exactly. I mean, I've seen an expansion judges courts you know it makes life much easier if you're just talking about 50 50 division of assets um technically the equitable distribution law in new york is not equal distribution mm -hmm. it's fair and equitable um the prior law in new york prior to 1980 was a title-based division so that if someone had the knowledge or sophistication to put assets into their name, then in a divorce, they would get the assets. So the change in the law in 1980 was intended to avoid those situations where one person simply put all the assets in their name. And so, yes, 10 years plus is considered a long-term marriage, and general rule is divide assets 50-50 in a long-term marriage. I've seen the 50-50 concept expanded to shorter than 10-year marriages. Um, but, you know, there are cases in a five-year marriage or six or seven where one party earns substantially more than the other, where in theory, you know, there should be more of a pro-rata distribution of assets. But in my experience over the last 20 years or so, the trend is definitely toward dividing things equally to some extent without regard to the length of the marriage. Um, but in that sort of classic situation where people have a house, where people have um, retirement assets, the general rule is going to end up being 50-50 division and you get into different types of situations, like 
if I want to remain in the house, mm -hmm. what do we do? You know, if, if I don't have enough money to buy you out of the house, but we have a million dollars in retirement assets and my half of the retirement assets is $500,000 and your half of the house is $500,000, you know, do we do some kind of trade? And that gets into another area, which is a dollar of a retirement account is not the same as a dollar in equity in a home. Because if you draw money from a retirement account, you're going to have to pay taxes on that money. If you sell your home, in most situations, in many situations, you don't have to pay any taxes because of the $250,000 hmm. exemption per person um, for the profit from a home. Again, you know, people should always consult with an accountant um, because I'm touching on tax issues, but I am not a CPA. I am just a lowly matrimonial lawyer. Um, so, but, you know, sometimes you'll have that situation where someone says, well, I'll just trade my share of the retirement assets for his or her share of the home. And it's more complicated than that. There has to be some tax impacting done because the person receiving the retirement assets is not That's receiving an asset really of equal value with a home. So, um, so you get into those kinds of issues. Um, as I touched on earlier, you get into issues with dividing up um, restricted stock units that one person has accumulated during the marriage and the uh, you know the restricted stock units or the stock options usually have a vesting period so if someone receives 5,000 shares of IBM stock because they work at IBM but it's uh, 5,000 RSUs the first tranche might vest in three years well, you know, they usually vest in three or four year periods. So what happens if a divorce action is started or a mediation or collaborative divorce process has started in the middle of that vesting period? And so that's another area with that DeJesus case that I mentioned, which is a New York Court of Appeals case from 1998, where they've come up with a process for looking at the grant date and looking at the um, commencement date of the action or the agreed upon stop the clock date of their circumstances and then the the grant date the stop the clock date and then the vesting date down the road and getting a financial person involved to do the calculations on the marital share and the separate share um, and then the non-titled spouse getting 50 percent of the marital share of those assets um, same thing with stock options. And then, you know, depending on the case, you can get into a much greater level of complexity with different long-term performance plan or long-term performance awards. Or um, So then oftentimes you're going to bring in a financial advisor, a financial professional to help advise on the different aspects of those assets um, annuities i think are the bane of the matrimonial lawyer because <coughs> annuities can have embedded penalties 
if you try and divide them. Um, people going through divorce often hear oh, about yeah. quadros, qualifying domestic relations orders. And so that goes to the issue of, you know, dividing up assets in the context of the divorce and dividing retirement assets in a way that there are no immediate taxable events. So taxes are not being incurred. Yeah. Okay. What about um, just back to the beginning of the divorce? What do you think about filing first? Some, some people say it's important to file first. Um, generally, it doesn't matter who files first. And from an attorney's perspective, if you're thinking down the road to trial, the person who files first, the plaintiff, has to go first at trial. And some people might consider that an advantage. Some people might consider that a disadvantage. So many cases settle. I think I saw a statistic that 97% of all divorces in New York end up in a settlement. And so if you're the one who has to go first and your attorneys have to prepare and put in all that time and the day of, I mean, the other attorneys still have to prepare, but they don't have to be mm. as prepared on that first day of trial. Um, if the judge then puts the pressure on and the case settles on that first day of trial, <coughs> then, you know, it's a, so th there are different aspects to it. Um, from my perspective, generally, it doesn't really matter who files first because once you're in the process, the judges generally don't care who the plaintiff hmm, is and who the defendant is. You know, I think they care more about the way people comport themselves on issues and try and work toward resolution of issues than which party is the plaintiff and which party is defendant. And we don't, you know, in reality, we don't really have grounds for divorce in New York anymore. And we've got this one ground that um, came into effect in 2010, irretrievable breakdown of the marriage for a period of six months or more. And so almost every divorce I see now, the grounds are irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. And whereas prior to 2010, I spent so much time describing the grounds for divorce to people, you know, adultery, cruel and inhuman treatment, abandonment for a year or more, living separate and apart, pursuant to a written separation agreement for a year or more. And generally, at this point, I don't really have to get into any of those grounds, except people often ask the question, um, do you have to be separated for a year before you can get a divorce? And the answer is no. Um, you have to work out the terms of a separation agreement, and both sides have to sign uncontested divorce papers. But using Westchester as an example, once everything gets filed, um, once the agreement and the uncontested divorce papers get filed in Westchester County, it might be two to four months before a judgment of divorce is signed. Um, I'm experiencing New York County being, I, we submitted papers last summer that still haven't been signed. Um, apparently Erie County, Buffalo, is good with processing uncontested divorce papers. I had a case years ago with an attorney in Rockland County 
who files all of his divorces in Erie County because he wants to get them done so quickly. And uh, so, so all different. Um, so I was about, I'm looking, I just checked the time. And I'm like, we are almost at an hour, but I have one question just that came in and then one other question that might be kind of big, but let me get the question that came in. Someone has a protection order for one and a half years. Is that going to impact the divorce or, you know, would that person have an advantage in the divorce? So it's hard to say. Um, there were changes in the law over the course of the last roughly 10 years to recognize domestic abuse. And um, I think it depends on the degree. You know, generally in the cases that I have where someone has an order of protection, the judges are still very focused on what they need to do to move the case forward toward settlement or toward resolution if that's by trial. And so um, that's where I see the emphasis, not necessarily on some advantage to the person who has you know, suffered to the extent that they had to get an order of protection. Um, you know, it, it's unfortunate, but there really is such a tremendous focus in the court system on moving cases, especially with COVID. The courts really got overwhelmed, and so they need to move cases and and get cases done so that the new cases coming in, you know, don't overwhelm the system. But Technically, in the statutes, there is reference to the court being able to take into consideration um, the issue of domestic violence as part of, I believe it's under the division of assets. I'm not sure if it's under the spousal support as well or both, or, but it, is a cons it should be a consideration I cannot say that it really is. That's, it's good to know, just in case, because sometimes people get their hopes up, and it's good to get what we call the harsh New York reality check. It is what it is. Right. All right. So my bigger question, I'm going to wait because maybe we'll we'll continue this, continue the conversation another time, and have more time to get into that. But you said that you did over a hundred videos. Can you tell people how they can find you or how they can access your videos? Sure. Sure. Um, so my firm is Fredman Bacon and Novenstern LLP. We have some videos posted on our website um, and our Facebook page. In addition, we have a YouTube channel for Fredman Bacon and Novenstern LLP. So all the videos should be on the YouTube channel. And some of the videos are on website. I also post most of them on LinkedIn. So they should be accessible Great. on my LinkedIn All right. page. Well, thank you so much, Ken, for taking all the time. And I love the, the background chirping noises. I think you're the first one who's having. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I looked at, uh, I saw it was 67 degrees out, sort of a perfect uh, night in April. So thank you. But thank you for the opportunity, Lisa. I enjoyed our conversation a few weeks ago. And it's tremendous that you make this available to people. One of the things that I've had clients say to me in consultations when they mention my videos is that it's so hard to get information. 
that there's so little information out there. So you're doing a tremendous service by providing people with this opportunity. And, you know, from an attorney's perspective, it's hard to set up a forum at a local library and say, come on out, let's talk about divorce because we want to be seen. You know, it's, uh, it's that club that none of us ever wanted to be a part of. And, you know, you end up in, and you and I talked, I'm um, divorced and remarried. And uh, so it's, it's that club and no one really wants to say that they are about to join that club. Um, but it's tremendous that you provide this vehicle for well, people thank you. to get information. Thank you so much for saying that, but thank you even more for being part of this um, and educating people on a lot of the basics that most people who we call our babies at the beginning of the process have no idea. So this is really enlightening for them. That's great. Well, thank you. And great. my first time on Instagram Live. I do a lot of Facebook, a lot of hiking postings, but... Um, well, well, you're so, welcome and we'll, we'll continue you. the conversation later and get to my big question. All right, so right, thanks right. again, Ken. Have a great night. Right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Been There Got Out podcast. Please leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. And you can find us easily on all major social media, but especially Instagram and YouTube. If you think we might be able to help you with your own situation, just visit beentheregotout.com and click the button to schedule a complimentary discovery call. Thanks again, and see you next time.